It's around three o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. I haven't been sleeping well since since I got that grant. <laughs> just like not what I was expecting, but I've just become so nervous. I have this major insomnia. Now that I feel like, okay, I'm actually doing this. It's not just an idea. Today, Adam was home with a fever. We were just sitting on the floor in his room, reading stories. And he crawled onto my lap. He was so cuddly, and he just fell asleep. So I was just holding him and forced to just sit there and just stare at him. It was kind of nice. I don't have these moments anymore so much. When they're babies, you stare at them all the time when they're sleeping. And I just start worrying. What if this is the job I'm best at now, you know? Then Adam peed on me in his sleep. Hi, this is First Day Back. This is a documentary podcast about one accidental stay-at-home mom, that's me, trying to get back to filmmaking. So far, I have one small grant for a film project, and I'm working with a producer to raise more money. If you're just joining in, I recommend going back and starting with episode one. So, once again, this episode took longer than planned. You'll hear more on why in a minute. This episode is about insecurity and creativity. Because this isn't just about work, it's also about creative work. I'm going to talk to a writer who makes a living creating, and a painter who doesn't, and who says a lot of the things I've thought about, but have been afraid to say. Once I got the grant, I thought I would feel better, not worse. But so far, I was able to enjoy it for five minutes. My biggest emotion now is stress. Now I'm accountable. People have given me money and are watching. But also, it's more real, and I'm afraid of losing it. I'm doubting my abilities. I'm afraid of people thinking the time off ruined me, that I'm off my game. I used to be part of the documentary scene. I'd go to filmmaking events and screenings. Now I have a hard time getting out of the house on a weeknight. I need to stop obsessing over all the ways this could go wrong, and fortunately, there's a distraction coming up. I saw a pyramid that shot a giant light up into the air. I saw a big airport. I saw a lot of lights. I saw a, a, a circle that was light up, so it, and it looked a bit like it's a Ferris wheel. And I didn't see where we're going today. Where are we? Surprise, we're in Las Vegas. I took the grant money and ran. No, actually, David is at a conference, and I'm tagging along with the kids for a vacation. There's been a lot of this. Whoa, awesome! Whoa, awesome! And also a lot of this. I'm a stay-at-home mom again for a couple weeks, but this feels very different. Not just because we're away, but also because it's clear to me that it's temporary. 
Vegas is mystifying, but the kids are like moths to the flame. Whoa, look at all the lights! That is so light! Actually, light. We're back in Montreal. My producer Miriam had her baby, a healthy little girl named Adele. The person who will replace Miriam while she's on mat leave is Annie, who I met. Annie is nice, very experienced, but not comfortable in English. The tricky thing with making a podcast in a bilingual city is that a lot of meetings are happening in French. So, to recap the situation, now that I have a small grant, I can compensate myself retroactively for the work I've done on the FAYA project so far. FAYA, by the way, is spelled F-A-L-L-A. People have been asking me about that. Now we have to sell it to a broadcaster to be able to access more funding. Annie and Philippe, the executive producer, pitched it to RTV, an arts broadcaster. It's normal that I don't go to those meetings. The producers are the salesmen. Annie sent me an email to say that they haven't heard any feedback from RTV since the meeting. That doesn't seem good to me. In the past, they've grabbed my projects right away. And we need to know what we're doing, since the summer is coming up. Joel Yanofsky, the writer from episode 2, has a lot of parallels to my life. He's in the middle of a lag between books, though I'm sure he doesn't love me calling it that. And I wanted to know how he deals with all the self-doubt. It doesn't change. Like, I mean, from the first time I wrote a book, which did take me a long time, you'd think you would learn something from the first process that you can do it. I mean, you do learn a little bit that you can do it. I mean, you've made these films before. I've written these books before. It should be understood that we can finish it. But it's never there. It's always the same process, the same sort of uh, series of doubts and, and sort of like one day I look at, the, at, at something I've written and I think it's wonderful and the next day it's just garbage and, and the writing itself hasn't changed. It's just my perception of it. Everything I write now seems like it's just not, it's not flowing in the same way and I think sometimes maybe I'm just getting old and, and I should retire. I should be like, a, like an old baseball player and just hang up my cleats and say I don't want to write anymore. Because I, I tell this to people and they don't believe me that I'm sort of like hanging it up. I look up and it's, it's this, this coming up this month, the end of this month, it's four years since that book Bad Animals came out and so and I don't have anything else to show for it and I do have people asking me what are you working on are you working on something and I would talk about it if it was going better uh, but this time I don't know it just feels different I don't know it feels a little different in that I don't feel like I have as much um, to say maybe or I haven't figured out what I want to say or there I don't have the sense of urgency to say it I think there was more there, and I think just that comes with maybe just getting older and a little more jaded about the process, about what the outcome of this is going to be. It's just going to be another book that most people don't read, you know, that most people aren't going to see or, 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 or buy. Uh, occasionally they'll tell you, oh, I got that out of the library or I borrowed it from somebody, and that's like the worst thing you can tell a writer. Just, you know, either buy the book or pretend you bought the book. I mean, what would I do? You know. That's what I was thinking as you're talking. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any fallback jobs or anything. You know, so this is, and that's always been the case, and I think it is kind of my sort of achievement is that I, I haven't had a real job for as long as I can remember, forever really. 
I could use a deadline, I think, is what I could do. And the deadline, I remember Charlie Kaufman, the guy who wrote Adaptation, and I think he was talking about the writing of the screenplay for Adaptation. He was talking, he was doing an interview with somebody. He was at his deadline, he brought it in, and what he got said to get himself to finish it, even though he had no faith in it at all, was, uh, well, what's the worst they can do? They'll fire me, I'll be out of the business, I'll do something else. You know, and that was kind of his, his point of view was, what's the worst that can happen? I'll just not do this anymore. And, and that's actually freeing. I think that's a freeing notion. So maybe that's what I'm doing too. I'm sort of freeing myself to say, well, if I write something really crappy and nobody wants it, what's the worst that can happen? I just won't do this anymore. I'm lying in bed, um, kind of wishing that I could undo a moment of seeing something on Facebook. A few months ago, um, I was approached by a local producer and an ad agency. Uh, they were doing a big ad campaign, and they're looking for documentary filmmakers because they were going to be doing these kind of real people stories. And so I went in and met them and sat around a round table and gave some ideas, and it was kind of like a an interview pitch session thing. And everyone there made me feel like it went super well, um, that they loved me, they loved my ideas. And I left thinking it went great. And um, a few days later they called and they said they're uh, like stuff fell through with the brand and they're they've changing concepts and they're not going ahead with the idea. But I still felt really proud of myself because, you know, I didn't even have full-time daycare for Adam at that point. I wasn't really sure that I wanted to get back to work and I kind of jumped back into this professional context and I felt like I really nailed it. Um, and now I just went on Facebook and there was this announcement that they, they're releasing this ad campaign and they thanked all the documentary filmmakers that had worked on it so they did do it they just didn't do it with me you know that's a moment that I've been using when I feel crappy to think like look you can do this and now you know I remember in that meeting sitting with the executive producer and and the advertising agency guy. And at some point, the executive producer looked over at me and said, so do you really want to be working? And I, I remember having this moment of panic because I was thinking, like there's a crack showing kind of thing. Like, why would he ask that? I mean, it's such a weird thing to say. And maybe asking that was should be an indication to me that I'm not coming across as confident as I think I am. And I, I remember answering like, yeah, yeah, of course. But maybe he asked it because I didn't look like I was totally there. I mean, I wasn't totally there in my mind, but I really wanted to be.
I always thought I would have kids, and I always thought I would have a career, but I didn't expect motherhood to be the main thing people saw in me. And it's the most irreversible thing I've ever done. I mean, the job security is unmatched. But when I go into the creative world, the world of filmmakers and ad agencies, what do people see? Our occupations define us. I went to a high school reunion a few years ago. Here were adults I knew pre-career. There was this old friend, Gary Goldberg. I knew him as an athletic but goofy guy who was obsessed with hockey. Now he's a mattress coil salesman. Not the mattresses, he told me, the coil technology. He's still that guy I knew, but now even I describe him as a mattress coil salesman. Is that how it is for me too? Salon.com writer Mary Elizabeth Williams wrote this, which resonated. Work defines me like motherhood defines me, and I'm not ashamed or apologetic about that. Williams is a working mom, but realized at some point that her daughter assumed that she did it out of necessity, not choice. When her daughter asks her, if dad made more money, you wouldn't work, right? Williams was puzzled. I like my work. My work is important to me, she told her. I want to work. I want to make you proud of me, and this is how I do it. Williams then interviewed her friend Celeste, another journalist and singer, and she said this, We're supposed to think that kids are the most important things in our lives, but kids are the best and worst things that can happen to a person. And I'm someone's kid too. Before kids, I painted. Right now, it's difficult to call myself a painter, or I question whether I am, because if you don't paint, are you a painter? You know, if, you're, if you don't make art, are you an artist still? And I always struggle with that, because having kids, there's a lot less time. And I go through periods, maybe six months, a year, where I'm not doing any art. So I have this whole identity crisis. Am I an artist or not? That's David Raman, an IT guy who's a painter. Actually, he might be a painter more than an IT guy. When you say you don't know if you're a painter, like when you, when you tell people what you do, what do you say? I generally tell them my profession, which is IT, because I think that's what people are really asking, is what do you do for a living? So he works in IT to support his family. His situation is different because he is supporting his family, and I am not but he voiced some of my fears about who you are if you're not creating work or working. You know, when you're, you have kids, it's very difficult to find an hour here, three hours there, you know, to paint. And even then, you know, it's difficult to be creative and really get into your art in an hour that's squeezed between picking up the kids or making dinner or whatever, uh, you know, you need, or I do, at least I, should, I need three, four hours consecutive just to lose myself and get into it. So that time is hard to come by. I often wonder whether I'm doing the right thing. You know, maybe I should uh, be devoting myself to my art and struggling and therefore the family struggling and maybe that's a more valuable lesson to my kids 
is, you know, follow your dreams. But then, you know, I don't, I don't want the family to suffer because of that. So it's, it's a really hard choice, you know, and as, as a father and a husband, there, there's that pressure to provide. It, it feels selfish to be an artist, you know, in a sense, and, and have your family struggle, you know, when you're supposed to be the provider. Being an artist is really, it's really who I am. I mean, it's an important part of my identity. And, and when I paint, I feel happy. I feel alive. I feel like, okay, this is the true inner David. But, you know, I don't know how to balance the two. You know, I feel like I've had to sacrifice, you know, a part of me to have the other part of me. You know, at least in my view, my point of view is that you have to make a choice. You know, are you going to dedicate your life to your art? Or are you going to have a family and a more traditional life and sacrifice some of your art for that? You know, I always wonder, you know, what my life would have been like if I had, you know, gone the other route and just stayed single and been an artist and what would what would have happened what, what would my art be like um, but I know in my heart that's not what I really wanted I already sacrificed one part of me to have the other part when I was with my kids all day I didn't have any ideas for films it's not like I was jotting down ideas on the corners of coloring pages and being frustrated that I couldn't do them. I just didn't have any. And like David Raman, I really didn't feel like a filmmaker. Now I'm trying to channel the pre-kids me, but it's hard not to feel like an imposter. It's like being in a long hallway with a door at each end. When I try to open the one at one end, the doorknob keeps coming off in my hand. listening to First Day Back. Thanks to Maria Shamis-Turner, who was associate producer on this episode. Thanks also to Joel Yanofsky, David Raman, Marcy Denisek, and Megan Price. Thanks also to Rob McGinley-Myers, whose podcast, Anxious Machine, you should check out. Musical thanks to Poddington Bear, Johnny Ripper, and Yellow Ostrich of the Free Music Archive. I'm going to come right out and ask you guys, if you like the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. It really helps the visibility of this thing. Also, First Day Back is on Twitter and Facebook if you're on those places. Thanks for listening. Roads are closing down.